Welcome to Mother Bodies, the podcast about postnatal health and why it matters. I'm your host, Rosie Taylor. I'm a journalist and I'm on a mission to find out why we so often fail to give mothers the care and support they need after birth. It's fabulous to have you back for this second series or welcome to those of you listening for the first time. Just in case you're new to Mother Bodies, let me tell you what the podcast is all about. Every week, I speak to an expert or well-known mum. Together, we debunk myths and break down taboos around postnatal health and discuss why the system is failing so many women and what we can do to change parents' lives for the better. This is Mother Bodies. So today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Sarah Graham. Sarah is an award-winning health journalist specialising in health, gender and feminism. She's founder of the blog Hysterical Women, which explores gender biases in healthcare. She wrote her debut book, While Pregnant with Her First Child. Rebel Bodies, A Guide to the Gender Health Gap Revolution, is out now. So first off, can you just very briefly talk us through what exactly is the gender health gap and what is the revolution that you talk about in Rebel Bodies? Yeah, so in the simplest kind of terms, uh, the gender health gap is a way of thinking about the gender disparities that exist in healthcare between men and women. So it's differences in treatment and in health outcomes, as well as kind of gaps in things like medical research um, and gaps in the knowledge that doctors have, for example, about women and the conditions that primarily affect us. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's obviously very complex and there are loads of other like intersecting factors that come in. And then the revolution side of it that I talk about in the book is the movement I think that we've seen in kind of the last five or so years of people, women, patient advocates, activists, campaigners kind of speaking up about their experiences, saying, I experienced this in healthcare and it wasn't okay. I'm not prepared to accept this. And I don't think other women should have to go through this either. And I think that is something that I've been really inspired by in my work as a journalist over the last few years. So I wanted the book to not just be about the really depressing stuff, about the inequalities, the biases that that women and other uh, marginalised groups face. I also wanted it to be kind of a celebration of the stuff that is happening to kind of change the conversation, put this on the political agenda and start to make change happen, hopefully. That's amazing. This all sounds really positive. So obviously you said there about the gender health gap and the biases and the gaps in research... In terms of postnatal health, because I know that's something you, you do cover in the book, how does that apply to that area? Yeah, so I mean, postnatal health is an interesting one because it, you know, pregnancy and childbirth and postnatal issues are obviously kind of one of the areas where medicine does know quite a bit. You know, women have been having babies and people have been creating families forever. And so it's not necessarily somewhere where there are gaps per se, but I think it is somewhere where one of the issues that we really see is around who is prioritised. So I talk about this a lot throughout the book. And I think what's really striking when it comes to pregnancy, childbirth and postnatal issues is the way in which mothers and birthing people are kind of forgotten about in the mix. Everything is kind of focused on having a healthy baby and obviously that's important and every parent wants wants that for their child but it seems to often mean that 
the needs of the woman or the person who's giving birth just get completely forgotten about or they're seen as being mutually exclusive to the needs of the baby. And actually, like, a healthy, happy mum is super, super important to a healthy, yeah. happy baby. Like, you can't have one without the other. But that, I think, is one of one of the really big things. So with postnatal health, I mean, we've seen a lot in the last few years around um, issues with the six-week check and the fact that that is so often all about the baby and maybe like one or two really brief questions about the mum but you know things like postnatal depression things like pelvic floor issues are just not being picked up because everybody is you know so busy getting gooey over this cute little newborn and mums are so busy and so tired that they push themselves to the back of the queue as well so we it that I think is is one of the really big issues when it comes to kind of postnatal bodies. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And when you, you sort of started by saying, oh, you know, we we know a lot about this and that there aren't necessarily gaps in the area, my immediate thought was like, but there's a huge gap. Um, and obviously you, you agree with that too, because I, from my own research, I found that a lot of the guidance for medical professionals is sort of, here's everything you have to do in pregnancy. And it's really quite detailed about pregnancy. And here are, you know, all the different treatment pathways for birth. And it's really, really detailed about birth. And then it's like oh breastfeeding and child and there's this sort of gap where it's like but what happens to the woman who's just gone through the biggest physiological change a body can go through going from being pregnant to not pregnant in the space of you know a moment really from delivery and the huge changes that come with that and there just seems to be very little I mean even knowledge among medical professionals I've had lots of doctors say to me that when they had their baby they were so surprised because they hadn't been taught what to expect and what changes their body would go through yeah no it it is really shocking and actually interesting you mentioned about all the guidance in pregnancy because I think sometimes that is so kind of over cautious and Mm. like overstated you know and and I talk in the book about the fact that a lot of the evidence a a lot of the guidance like total abstinence from alcohol is not evidence-based um, which I think comes back to this thing of, you know, not trusting women to to make good choices for themselves and their babies. But yeah, as you say, I think you're absolutely right. This is absolutely one of the things that I that I hear a lot from women is there's almost kind of this attitude of, well, what did you expect? This is just the price you pay for having a baby. And again, that's something that I see come up in loads of different areas of health. And I talk about it in the sexual health chapter that contraceptive side effects are seen as the price you pay for not having a baby mm-hmm. um and it, it's exactly the same with, with kind of postnatal issues that oh well you've got a lovely baby and that should be enough one of the um women that I interviewed Claire Murphy who's the CEO of BPAS put it really beautifully she said that there's this total expectation of maternal self-sacrifice you are expected to give up everything of yourself your body, your career, your identity, your hopes and dreams, and everything is all about the baby. And so, you know, if you're like weeing yourself a bit when you sneeze, then that's just, oh, well, you've got a really nice baby to make up for it. Yeah. And I think, I think that is, that is a big part of the problem is that it's seen as inevitable. Uh, But as you say, equally, it's so many people go into childbirth not even knowing to expect it not knowing that there is a possibility that this might happen to them and I think often actually that not knowing not being prepared can be the hardest part of it because it completely blindsides people 
Um, yeah, and they absolutely. and they don't know what to do. They don't know that they can ask for help. They don't know what help is available. Whereas I think at least if you are prepared in advance, you know, you can be doing your pelvic floor exercises through pregnancy. You kind of have a bit more of an idea of where to go if things, if there are issues afterwards. But if you just don't know what to expect and you're then told, oh, well, this is just normal. It's just what happens. People put up with it for years and they shouldn't have to. Absolutely. And that phrase that you said, well, what did you expect? It has a sort of double-edged sword, doesn't it? Because people say, oh, what did you expect? Well, actually, I didn't expect this because nobody told yeah. me on one hand. And then you're sort of made to feel kind of stupid for it as well as yeah. feeling like you have to put up with it, which is just not acceptable. Totally, totally. On that note, in terms of what did you expect? I mean, obviously, you wrote this book while pregnant and you have run the Hysterical Women blog for a long time and you have a lot of experience in this area as a journalist but did you find when you went through that process of birth and postnatal recovery was there anything still that surprised you about your health or the care that you received? Yeah I think I mean as you say I was very you might say overprepared. I was <laughs> Uh, and interestingly, you know, the chapter on perinatal healthcare was one of the first chapters that I wrote. So I, I was writing it really in those early days of first trimester, just absolutely exhausted, writing a few paragraphs at a time and then having a nap or like nibbling on my ginger biscuits and just feeling really horrendous. And I, it was a really anxious time, actually, because I was so aware of every single thing that could possibly go wrong from miscarriages and you know stories of women having miscarriages and just being like left basically and treated like mm -hmm. uh, again this is normal it happens totally unsympathetic kind of attitudes through to all the horrendous things that could happen during birth stories of women being denied pain relief stories of you know being ripped open and then having horrendous fecal incontinence and things for for years afterwards and it was horrifying. And I think, as you say, I've been writing about this kind of stuff for a long time anyway as a journalist. And I think I've always been very scared of childbirth anyway. And I'd always kind of had in the back of my mind, oh, I'll probably just end up having an elective C-section because that all just sounds horrific and there's, I don't want to go there. And I think actually, in a weird sort of way, the thing that surprised me the most was how positive it can be because mm -hmm. um, my experience having geared myself up for it to be awful was actually really positive um, and I'd heard so many stories you know of like midwives being very kind of rigid and this is the policy this is the way it goes and you just have to do as you're told and be a good girl and all the rest of it and so I kind of went into my first community midwife appointment properly kind of psyched up to fight for myself like no this is what I want and this is how it's going to happen. And she completely actually, actually kind of blindsided me, it, but for the opposite reason, because she was very much like, this is your body, your birth, your choice. We will support you. Amazing. And actually I surprised myself by doing lots of research and deciding that I kind of wanted to go the opposite route from, from the elective C-section and that I wanted a home birth. I wanted a water birth. I, you know, I did loads of, research into hypnobirthing and, and did all of that stuff that I in the past I think would have considered very kind of woo-woo and not really not really me not really evidence-based but actually the science behind it is good and 
it works. You know, for somebody who had a very straightforward, uncomplicated pregnancy and birth, it was absolutely the right thing for me. And although I didn't get my home birth because of COVID and there weren't enough midwives, it actually was a really positive experience. And I felt really well supported. And, you know, I think because I was so overprepared, I had a very detailed birth plan. I'd had lots of conversations with my husband beforehand about what I did and didn't want so that he could advocate for me if necessary, kind of in the heat of it when, you know, I knew that that there was a chance I wouldn't feel able to advocate for myself. But actually, I think the fact that I felt so prepared was a positive thing in lots of ways because it did, it, it allowed me to have so many of those kind of thoughts and conversations and plans about what I did and didn't want. It allowed me to really focus on doing my pelvic floor exercises, doing my Pilates throughout pregnancy and wanting to be really prepared for what might come. And I, you know, obviously I was very lucky that everything was very straightforward. I didn't have a horrendous birth. I had actually a really positive, nice experience, which clearly there is no guarantee of however prepared you are and however much hypnobirthing you do. But yeah, I think that was what surprised me. And it sounds a bit cheesy, but actually, yeah, I, I had been so kind of, it was so ingrained in me that birth was horrific and that there was no way of doing it in a positive, dignified way, because that's that's what you're told. You know, everybody has a horror story, and I had heard so many of them. Um, <laughs> but actually, yeah, it took me by surprise that there is another way, that, that another way is possible. That's really positive to hear. And I think as a journalist, I totally identify with the fact that we tend to... Re- in the course of our work, do you tend to see the worst case scenarios, don't you? Because the everything went fine is generally yeah, not news. That's not a good story. No one wants to yeah. talk about that. <laughs> um, but I think it's really interesting how you talk about this sort of balance between being scared and terrified because you'd heard so many horror stories, but also being informed. Because I think one of the excuses that is used to not properly inform women is this idea that we don't want to scare yeah. them. And... On the one hand, I do empathise with that because when I was pregnant, I similarly found the thought of birth absolutely terrifying. Mm. You know, you hear these horror stories, you don't know how it's going to go. It all sounds dreadful. And I remember saying to my midwife, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to choose because all the options sound awful. (laughs) And and she was actually really kind and sympathetic and did a similar thing. She just said, well, why don't you think about all the things that could happen and what you want to happen if they do? And it was just actually really really reassuring and I went through kind of in my head every possible scenario and came up with a plan for what I would want to happen in that scenario and you're just being informed and having thought through what might happen and being given the options for what could happen in those circumstances just made me feel calmer because I was educated about it. Yeah absolutely and I was exactly the same I felt I went into birth feeling totally in control which was not how I had expected to feel at all and all the way through labour like my husband kept saying to me, I can't believe how in control you are. I can't believe how calm you are. But I think... That's actually not very helpful to say. <laughs> <laughs> Just introduce some panic into the room. But, you know, I think it's so important when you are going through something as massive and as vulnerable and as life-changing as birth that you do feel in control. And that's one of the things, you know, I interviewed a perinatal psychiatrist about kind of all the, all the kind of perinatal mental health issues that come up. 
And one of the things she said was that the most common things that she finds is with kind of birth trauma is that actually, regardless of what has happened during the birth, the thing that causes most trauma is feeling that you're not in control, you're not listened to, your wishes are not respected. And I think that is such a big thing that we do not give enough credit to. And I think, you know, I think this whole attitude of we don't want to scare women is just really bloody patronising, isn't it? Like, that, you know, in order to continue the human race, we have to keep secrets from women. You know, and it's not as if women don't go on to have second and third and fourth children once they know the truth. Um, yeah, exactly. you, know, you don't have to keep things from us. Actually, it's far more useful, like you say, to be able to think about every possible scenario and to be given all the information you need to, to make a fully informed choice about how you want it to go. And rather than just being thrown into this situation where, and actually it's interesting that one of the most insightful comments uh, was not from a woman, was from um, a non-binary transmasculine person who I interviewed about his experiences of giving birth. And he said that he had, he'd previously worked as a doula and he'd worked with lots of cis women. And he described this kind of attitude that he sees women going through of you're kind of like thrown onto these river rapids. And there's this attitude of you just have to like go with the flow and be a good girl and do as you're told. And I think mm-hmm. that is so true. You just feel like you're being like pu- pushed along by this kind of current of, you know, people telling you what to do and this is what's going to happen to you and this is this is what you have to do. And that it feels so scary and out of control. Whereas actually knowing what to expect, knowing what's going to happen next, knowing what your choices are, I think feels feels much easier and much more like you you're in control of the situation and you are in the driving seat at the end of the day. Absolutely. And what about postnatal care? Did you feel like you received all the help and support that you needed or was that something you had to kind of fight for? Yeah, again, I think I was quite lucky because I didn't have any kind of particular issues postnatally, but, you know, where, where I felt like I needed particular support but I definitely felt like again I I had the same midwife uh, all the way through so that continuity of care was brilliant and postnatally she asked all the right questions she was very good at kind of checking in about how I was feeling about if I had any concerns six week check I, it was over the phone and I think like a lot of people have reported it it was quite sort of limited um but, you know, equally, the, the doctor I spoke to did ask about pelvic floor issues, reminded me to make sure I was continuing to do my pelvic floor exercises. She gave the advice of, of doing them whenever I was washing my hands. She was like, that's a really good kind of way of remembering to do it on a regular basis. Just, yeah, a few quick squeezes when you're washing your hands. So, yeah, I, I did feel, but but again, I don't know if I if I had felt like I needed more support, I don't know how forthcoming that would have been, if if that makes sense. Um, yeah, no. Certainly, I didn't feel like the support that I needed was lacking. But yeah, I was very lucky to have a very straightforward kind of recovery. Brilliant. 
Um, I wanted to ask about your inspiration for writing about this topic, because obviously historical women came before rebel bodies, but they're sort of both along similar lines of women's health needs being constantly kind of dismissed and neglected and overlooked and patronized and all of these <laughs> depressing things we've been talking about. Was your decision to sort of deep dive into this area influenced by your own experiences or was there something else? Both the blog and the book really came out of my journalism. And, you know, the book obviously came out of the blog. So it was it was quite an organic process. But I guess probably around five years ago, I had noticed that a lot of kind of similar themes, similar patterns were coming up in lots of different things that I was writing about. And that it was kind of across the board with different health issues. So whether I was writing about chronic illness or periods or the menopause or mental health, I was being told things like my doctor was very dismissive. I felt like I wasn't listened to. I felt like I wasn't taken seriously. I was misdiagnosed. I couldn't get the help I needed. And so really as a feminist, I I found that very frustrating. It got me really angry because I thought, well, why is this happening to so many different women? And is, you know, what's being done about it? And that was when I kind of started digging into it and, and discovered some of the research that already existed at the time around the gender health gap. And there's obviously been a lot more done since as well. But that was what inspired Hysterical Women was really this feeling that I wanted to prove to these women that they weren't alone, because that was the thing that I was really struck by, was they felt so isolated they felt like it was just them part of the reason that many of them hadn't spoken out was because they thought that they essentially had blamed themselves they they thought oh well everybody else must be coping with this it must just be me they kind of viewed it as like a personal failing that they weren't coping and so I wanted to prove the point that you know this isn't just you and it, you know it's not that you're weak it's not that you're failing it's not that you know you're, you're not coping well enough with whatever's going on with your body and it's not that it's all in your head you know this is a, a systemic issue where lots of women are reporting similar issues of feeling that they're not getting the health care they need so that was really the, the kind of main motivation for hysterical women and during the pandemic I obviously had been running the blog for a couple of years by that point but also, you know, I think a lot of the stuff that came out during the pandemic around the kind of personal and political connectedness of health and how each other's health is all connected and the social determinants of health and all of these things like that were, were being discussed. And I thought, actually, I really want to have a more long form place to explore this because the blog is fantastic in terms of curating stories and saying to women loads of people are going through the same thing you are but what it doesn't really do is provide any context so I wanted to put that into context I wanted to explain why this happens but also I felt very inspired by a lot of the activists and advocates that I'd met through my journalism work and I wanted to be able to celebrate them I wanted to have that kind of more positive spin on it and say look there is a movement here that is building So not only are you not alone, but actually there are people fighting your corner and you can get involved in this and here are some things you can do. And but also here are the things that we need from government and from policymakers and from people who have the power to affect change as well. It's amazing. Obviously, you cover all areas of healthcare in the book. But on this series, we're talking 
particularly about mother's health and that kind of postnatal first year after birth specifically. In terms of the positive things that you're seeing happening there, so the revolution, the changes, um, the things you're celebrating that giving you hope for the future, what kind of changes are you seeing in that field to improve mother's health? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things across the board, but including in postnatal health, is just that that these conversations are happening more. So things like this podcast are a really good example. You know, I think we're seeing a huge number of women speaking out more about things that were previously like completely unspeakable that you just wouldn't wouldn't have spoken about. So things like Luce Brett's book, PMSL, I think was a real kind of landmark. And similarly with Helen Ledwick's book, My Mums Don't Jump and her podcast and all the work that's being done around having these conversations, I think is such an important first step in the revolution because I think particularly with issues like incontinence and prolapse, people really need to feel empowered to speak out and to seek help because there's so much stigma, there's so much taboo kind of shrouding these issues. And no one wants to be the person that kind of puts their head above the parapet and says, yeah, I wet myself on the school run. You know, that those are really difficult conversations to have. And so for there to be women who are, being the people to start those conversations and say it's not okay that there is so much silence around this and someone needs to be the first person to speak up and I think what I see so often with these conversations is all it takes actually is one person to say this happened to me it wasn't okay and I'm going to speak out about it so that other people feel that they're not alone and you get this kind of amazing snowball effect. It's almost like women have been given permission to share their own stories. And it's just this like most incredible kind of rush of like, I, th- I think it must be really cathartic to have that release of, oh my God, I can finally tell this story that I've kept hidden, not even spoken to my partner about, not, you know, not spoken to anyone about for years and suddenly there are people on the internet saying, you're not alone, we get it, we are totally here with you. And people are able to start going, yeah, that happened to me. And realising that there is support out there, you know, I think equally the work of campaign groups like Pelvic Raw, organisations and, and physios <clears throat> who are on Instagram saying, this is what support is out there, Ask, speak to your GP, you know, ask to see a pelvic physio, here are some things you can do at home that might help. All of that kind of stuff is such an important kind of part of the movement because I think, you know, without that, we the, it, these stories will continue to be lost to silence and, and to stigma. Um, so I think that is is probably the most significant thing that I've seen in postnatal health. And I think, you know, we are starting to see some change there. So we've seen um, the setting up of some kind of postnatal clinics that are, that are going to be starting to look at pelvic floor issues. We're starting to see a bit more emphasis on that in the NHS. I think, you know, there's still a really long way to go, but I think the cultural side of things, the conversation, the getting people talking and actually just highlighting the scale of the problem, because it's very easy for the NHS or the government to say, oh, well, we don't have that service because there's no demand for it, because people yeah. have, 
been too scared to ask for it for decades um or been told that it's uh it's normal yeah, and they just have to live exactly yeah. so you know I think we're starting to see that there is huge demand for this that services are needed and I think that pressure on government to do something about it is is really important absolutely so I'm going to end by asking you the question I ask everyone that comes on if there was one thing you could change about the world we live in which would help new mothers what would it be I think the biggest thing for me about the whole of the gender health gap really is around funding and specifically when it comes to new mothers I think that is the biggest thing is funding for services we need proper funded perinatal health services whether that's mental health issues whether it's pelvic floor issues whatever it is we need that we need the government to cough up and and to make sure that there is money to support women equally I'm going to cheat a little bit and choose a second one which is to say that I think we need funding and policy change and all of that to go hand in hand with cultural change so I think we need mothers and postnatal bodies to be prioritized we need them to be seen as just as important as the health of the baby and I think until that happens no amount of funding or services or research or conversations on the internet are going to kind of fix the problem. We need it all to kind of go hand in hand. So yeah, I always struggle to pick just one thing, but I I think it is one, it kind of is one thing, isn't it? Because what we need is the funded services to be there, but the funded services are only going to be there once we start taking postnatal health seriously and giving women and their recovery the same respect. Yeah placing the same importance on it as the baby and the baby's well Absolutely. Yeah, totally. If you'd like to hear more from Sarah, you can buy her book Rebel Bodies, which is out now, and I've put a link in the show notes to where you can buy it. You can also check out Sarah's blog, hystericalwomen.co.uk, and follow her on Twitter, where she's at Sarah Graham 7, or on Instagram, where she's at Sarah Graham 7 Writer. Again, there are links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Mother Bodies and for spreading the word that mum's health does matter. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this episode, please, please don't suffer in silence. I've put some links in the show notes for organisations that offer support. Please do remember that nothing on this podcast should be taken as a substitute for proper medical advice. If you have any concerns about your physical or mental health, please contact a healthcare professional like your GP, midwife, health visitor, a women's health physiotherapist or your local counselling service. Hit subscribe or follow now to get Mother Bodies every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at Mother Bodies. <laughs>